I would like to uh, welcome each and uh, every one of you here this evening. We have some days here together for the uh, exploration uh, of the Dharma in its expansiveness, in its uh, immense uh, benefit, uh, the wealth of diversity uh, which it offers uh, to us. In this period of time of talking uh, to you, we'd like it to fall into two uh, primary areas. One initially, uh, Dharma talk, and secondly, the general overview of these days that we have here together from uh, this evening, went to the evening through till uh, Sunday at uh, lunch time. There are a variety of concepts uh, which are use, you and I use frequently, and certainly uh, one of them is uh, the mind. Uh, and in the, these teachings, one of the qualities, if I may say, and attributes of the teachings is the precision, remarkable precision, which is given to words. There. There is a recognition that a word, a uh, concept, can be explained to a degree by other words to get a sense of. So, to take two simple examples, there is reference to the body. It is a concept which is in reference to. Formation, in this case, with regard to humans, the, the physical body, and therefore uh, the body is a composition, a construction, formations together of a variety of elements and uh, energies and DNA and cells and evolutionary history and much more. And we take all of that composition together and what we're referring to in this case is uh, the body, and in specifically uh, the human body. In a rather similar way, there is a general concept called the mind. Yeah. And this uh, uh, concept is a similarly a kind of umbrella concept, and it refers very specifically to some areas in this case, not only yes, of course, the human condition, in which references made to perceptions, to views, to thoughts, ideas and concepts and words. In some cases, because we don't have uh, such a word in the English, but also, of course, to feelings and sensations and those tones and the heart, and there is a coming together of the range of feelings and thoughts and ideas and concepts and words and states of mind and much, much more. And the simple word is the umbrella concept. It's called the mind. Well, sometimes we may say uh, specifically with feelings and heart, we might, with feelings and emotions, we might refer to it as the heart. 
in, just keeping with the, the mind uh, for the, the moment, it is sometimes seen, particularly for the meditator, particularly around thoughts and ideas and views and opinions and concepts and ideation and intellectual abstractions, to be an obstruction to meditation. Oh, I hear it regularly. You might have heard your own voice as well. Oh, my mind. And it is not surprising, therefore, that in the reaction of the mind, by the mind, to the mind, because the reaction can't come out of anywhere else but the mind, in the reaction to the mind, it is not surprising that in the tradition there has developed, we might say, a view, oh, Dharma teachings are about realising no mind. <clears throat> Some traditions may speak of this, but not in this room, and not, the, not those of us who are uh, great fans of the precision of the Buddha with regard to this. It certainly can be, important aspect of this, we can be sitting in meditation, very silent, very still, present, conscious, and the mind genuinely can feel very empty, that there is nothing whatsoever going on in the mind, pardon me, and there is a quote-unquote no mind. In this case, umbrella concept, no thoughts, no ideas, no thinking about, no remembering, no planning, no words, no imagery. There is just nothing which is going on. And in the experience of no mind, in the way that I just spoke, sometimes there is immense gratitude and delight and sweetness. Oh, finally, I am experiencing an empty mind. A mind with no stuff going on, nothing whatsoever which is going on uh, uh, with it. So, the meditation, or the awareness, or the mindfulness, at times, can recognise the streams of thoughts, ideas, words, pictures, etc., etc. And also can appreciate, which is equally important, the absence of all of that. And it shows to us that our mind the way that I defined it, is not always going on in the way that it is uh, defined it. And therefore, there can be a consciousness, that means to be conscious of, or mindfulness, if you like that word, or awareness of, which is able to see, know, clearly and recognise what is going on, so to speak, in the mind, what is not going on at all, and to really see both clearly.
we have that capacity. To know the mind as an object which has content in it, stuff going on in it, and to know it when there's not a drap, drop of content in it. Nothing whatsoever. And certainly, in some of the meditations, or in spontaneous moments, that this recognition of the empty mind, that means no content, nothing going on, can contribute to our being going deeper. <clears throat> the appreciation for that, for the meditator, one has to remember in the stillness and the emptiness of the mind or in the depth of the quiet mind to be extraordinarily careful and mindful that the outcome of this, this is the important thing, to be careful not to identify with the empty mind, the silent mind, <coughs> the deeply calm mind, because any identification with that will generate a resistance to that which is not that. has to be. Identification with any experience, without exception, is problematic. Because one wants to hold to that experience and that holding to that experience will, like night follows day, it will bring about a resistance to that which is not that experience. And the... two uh, aspects to uh, all of this. It is a fairly common view in the tradition, not in the Buddha's Dharma, but in the tradition, Buddhist tradition here, including in the Vipassana world, the Zen world, the Dzogchen world, which is, these areas are where some of the hardcore meditators are around, that in, the, in these worlds, sometimes the priority is given to having a particular experience. And for that experience, whatever it might be, so that the experience itself is the confirmation of liberation, it is the confirmation of enlightenment, it's the confirmation of a transcendent discovery, of finding truth or whatever. So the meditator then has a rather, humanly enough, for some, not all, a deep interest, genuine interest, in meditating and some will take the view that if I explore with these meditations, if I go deeply enough, perhaps at some point I will genuinely have a 
profound, which is always going to be attractive, that word. <laughs> um, deep, that's another very appealing word for the meditator there. Experience, that's another appealing word there. And when I have this deep, profound experience, then in that I will know what liberation is. It might last a short while, it might last a longer period. So the experience becomes used humanly enough by the self as the only vehicle to know what liberation is through experience. And sometimes, including Christopher and others, will, will speak along those lines. But it's not the Buddha's Dharma. It is not. No matter how interesting, attractive, spellbinding it is to focus our meditations and practices in the direction of achieving or gaining or finding a particular experience or se series of experience to know the what you call it, the ultimate truth of the Dharma, the transcendent, <coughs> Nirvana, and the, all the other uh, lovely words. The Buddha, with his um, own experience, realized, understood, yeah, the problematic aspect of this commonly held view of the meditator. No matter how serious and committed one is. Because it leaves the same problem easily as I mentioned a few moments ago. We may have, back to the words, deep, profound experiences uh, there. And there are many ranges and blessings of them. And they genuinely can be important uh, turning points in our life. And you and I can possibly reflect back and uh, remember uh, certain times, moments and experiences in meditation, out of meditation, with another alone, indoors or outdoors, in the whole variety of circumstances uh, uh, of life, which can include plants, I won't name them, uh, etc., which had some significant impact uh, there. The problem with all of this is the tendency easily leaning in the mind, in the mind, with the view and the judgment that goes with it, is to repeat it. Of course it is. It was what? Deep. It was pr profound. I never had anything like this before. Or it only happens from time to time. And when that experience fades away, What's going to happen afterwards? Wow! And 
with the wow view, the uh, response to all of that viewpoint, humanly enough and naturally enough, one is going to see whether one can organize one's life or one's experience or one's next retreat or whatever it might be to see if one can have access to that again. Because the experience, beautiful as it is, and I don't want to underestimate their importance, the experience arose, it had a real impact, heart and mind and body and views and were affected by insights and understanding may come, and then, as it must, it faded. So if the Buddha's Dharma is not about achieving a certain experience or sequence uh, of them, then what is liberation? Surely it must stand out to you by now. Liberation is a liberation which is the freedom from dependency on all experiences. All of them. That's what liberation is about. It's not being tied in any way whatsoever to any experience. While having the precious capacity to explore the field of experience, to have a remarkable range of them which is not available to the secular mind, which is not available to the orthodox religious mind with its set of views and uh, uh, opinion, which can include, as the teachings do, the full, a very full range of secular experiences and views, texts go into them deeply, addresses the religious mind quite often with the word God, Brahma, the, the Sanskrit and Pali word for God, in the centre of it. All of that's touched upon. All of those experiences are referred to. But still, with a primary message, powerful and beautiful, exploring the full range of experiences, freedom from dependency. Liberation from identifying and holding on to any one of them. And therefore, that teaching of liberation is a teaching not dependent on experience, not dependent on the mind, not dependent on the heart, not depend, uh, depending on what is arising. It was, a, was and still is really, a kind of radical breakthrough, a radical shift in the whole way of relating to heart and mind. Respectful to it, thoughtful, using our mind well, uh, an intelligent approach, a wise approach to it, but my goodness, not using it to buttress up, that means to, to feed the self. I have this, I uh, have got this, whatever that might be in relationship to experience. Still recognising and acknowledging, of course, that 
huge numbers of insights, expansions of the heart, realizations, intuitive understandings can emerge out of experience. So it's not being neglected nor uh, any withdrawal from, that means the fear of experience, but not worth being identified with. Pretty sharp on teaching. It's a bit hard to argue with it, I have to say. The other, in the exploration, and the more relative view here for the moment, there, the teachings, and we'll touch on both over the days that we have here. Because sometimes, and I think it's you know, kind of understandable a, a little bit uh, w- with us, not all of us, but we've had so much, I suppose, polite word, we might call it indoctrination, and pumped into us since childhood about development of our mind it's called um, education I'm never sure if it's education especially if one is using the original Latin word educare which means to evolve to grow, whatever. But more importantly here, we have had, and we have adopted the habit very easily, of swallowing, which is kind of more honest word than absorbing, so much information, so much information, and that there is an addiction to information. <coughs> and this constant drawing in of the uh, information puts our mind, in the way that I described, under undue and uh, unnecessary pressure and stress. And we've been told... Uh, ever the uh, beloved educators were, from the parents to the school system. I had to look at my old school reports. And one of the consistent school reports as a child, as a t- teenager, a couple of the words in there were, were regular, you probably had them in some of yours, um, could do better. <laughs> should try harder like a mantra it was every year uh, there. thank goodness I never took any notice of those uh, and if I may say when I got to the age of 15 which in those dare I say good old days when one could leave school and go to work at the age of 15 I said to my parents there I'm 15 years of age and I'm leaving this school. It was a Roman Catholic grammar school there with priests and 
all of that boring stuff. Uh, and I, it's probably one of the most liberating decisions I can uh, recall. And my beloved parents were, were just thought I'd lost the plot there. So the Catholic priest, who was the school teacher in that, for our year, came round to the house and he appealed, talking to my mother, oh, Christopher should stay at school, he shouldn't leave school at 15, he should do his exams and go on to university, etc. And I recall, I wrote about this in one of my books somewhere, I recall that I was sitting in the kitchen, two parents and uh, uh, the Catholic, the priest, were discussing the rest of my life, or the <laughs> next few years. And 50 years later, my mother reminded me of this incident there, and she said, in the middle of it, 15 years of age, I shouted out from the kitchen, and the words were something like, I've made up my mind, I am leaving school, and there is nothing you can do about it. <laughs> And my parents turned to the priest and said, you see, and he said, you're right. And he left, and I left. <laughs> so sometimes we've been blessed um, to have the, have the break uh, there. More importantly than these, uh, the incident that, that I uh, refer to, that the Buddha has wisely here, A, Expressed a lot of concern about overuse of the of the mind in the variety of ways. Has not rejected the mind whatsoever, and has used this word bhavana. Bhava, in its general sense, means becoming. Bhavana is the development of the mind. To develop the mind. And some aspects of that, as I mentioned in our days here together, will include that. And in order for the mind to develop, it takes, uh, with regard to us, some clarity about essentially what contribution that or what can I engage in, what do I need to do, so to speak, there, which can, will contribute to the development of the mind. So there's no anti-mind in, the, in this, in this uh, uh, Dharma. There's no view, oh, my mind keeps getting in the way of my practice or whatever. But it does require and it does invite us to look at what is it that's going into our mind. And the tradition of renunciation that word that we use uh, so often but perhaps don't apply enough of letting go is a reflection when it comes to our mind and what is it which I may have an addiction to which I really need to let go of to find more space in myself so that my mind can breathe it can feel nourished and it can grow. And for some, given 
culture, if that's the right word, I think perhaps the only culture left is in the refrigerator. But anyway, so sometimes the only... Uh, one of the first starting off points with, with all of this is pretty simple. If you want to develop the mind, look at the relationship to the mobile phone. That's where you start. Because the amount of time that people are spending on the mobile phone is a severe block to the development of the mind. It's full, much of the time, of pointless, useless, irrelevant information, entertaining the, the, the mind with all the little chit-chats and text messages and bits and pieces of phone calls and uh, what else goes on, the games and the Instagram and the pictures and that, 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 that. How can a mind develop when for some X number of hours a day is zombie-like condition trapped in the face of the mobile phone. If one wants to talk about letting go, talk about changing one's life, it would be, a, for some, here and elsewhere of course, really worthwhile. Do I want to live and develop the heart and mind as a human being and that in order to grow as a human being, that means for the mind to uh, uh, develop, it needs space. How can a plant grow when there's a, book, a foot stamped on top of it? How can a human being, how can consciousness and the mind grow when X number of hours from wake up to sleep, much more than what we're willing to acknowledge is spent in front of this? And it's just one incident, one start in the world of letting go to generate a space to really have the opportunity to ask ourselves what kind of knowledge, which is one of the best uses of the mind, will enable myself and others as a human being to have a full engagement with life. And that will and does require from us just as it has done in the long distance past, long before the mobile phones and other things, it does require from us extraordinary mindfulness. Mindfulness in such, such a way that is there mindfulness with a spaciousness with it? Are we mindful of what we need to drop and let go of? Are we mindful of the kind of knowledge and wisdom and support which will really be of benefit for us and for others. And that, such a quiet commitment to the development of the mind with the space that it requires for its develop, uh, development makes an enormous difference to our life and the life of others. And that's part of this practice. It belongs, it's an essential feature in the spiritual uh, journey. And sometimes we will find in our uh, uh, reading and um, 
writer, you know, I write a lot. My, my Ajahn Dabodaro, my teacher, one of my teachers, my Vipassana teacher in uh, Thailand, with whom I spent probably around three years in the early 1970s, he had such a low regard for books. <laughs> I mean, l- l- low bordering on contempt the way he spoke about books and using the language in the monastery in the talks about books and Buddhism and books and books are the death of practice and all this you know, kind of language there one wasn't allowed to read any books you know, one only did one's practice he didn't want us m- meditating in our huts because he didn't believe us so we had to meditate on the ledge outside the huts because he could see uh, what was uh, going on and this is years ago when he found out I'd only written two or three books at the time I'd written two or three books he was not pleased <laughs> there, what's happened to his first western student writing books you know so they'd committed a war crime or something, you know, <laughs> etc. There, there. But others of us, obviously, take a different view, and therefore, in the body of the of the literature. But do we read to really help understand? Do we read a novel to help to understand the dynamics, say, of? interplay of personalities do we read a a poem to see what the deep truth is being conveyed in a few meters in a few lines of poetry do we read a read a text and say to ourselves this text which I'm reading and perhaps a core theme am I remembering that I've only understood something if it's actually manifesting in the daily life then I know something is beneficial and working for me. And so we take the, the different forms of literature from the novel to the, to the poem, to the essay, to the polemic, to the critique, to uh, the literature, to the books, to the religious texts. And we're expansive and open with it, but we're committed to the development of the mind so that understanding then can be shared with the other. The understanding helps to provide us with the insight. It informs us in a, a, a deep way. And to everything else which seems just a distraction, just a form of entertainment, which seems superficial and shallow, we use the quiet authority to say no to that in order that there is enough space in our connection with the immediate world so that the heart and mind, in fact, can really develop. And all of that is a real core and essential, important, vital aspect of what these uh, teachings are about. It's such a, a careful and caring emphasis on the use of the the mind in the way that I describe, in including the heart 
and for one simple and obvious reason, with the consciousness which, or mindfulness which recognizes what's going on with the heart and mind, because it's the only instrument a human being has to know this world and herself or himself. It's the only instrument. There's nothing else. This is it. And it's not that much to attend to. It is feelings. And it is some states of mind. And it is some perceptions and some views and opinions. It's not that much. How can we make such a hell of a fuss about that which is not that much? And therefore the element of space, akasha, the word, lovely word, to get this heart-mind into a proper perspective. And if we get it into a proper perspective, the knowing of it is simple. Suffering is over. The identification and the grasping on is over. The dependency on certain experiences is over. There is an authentic and genuine freedom there. And that genuine, authentic freedom, one knows deep down, one is not dependent on any single experience. That is precious and really freeing, while correspondingly and simultaneously being open to the whole variety and range of, of the human experience the profound and the deep especially there. Let me just speak about the, the days that we have uh, together. Falls roughly into three areas. <clears throat> One area is the morning period and it's a silent morning right through and including at the lunchtime. And well, with uh, that, some morning instructions at uh, 9.30 and the postures of the sitting and uh, the walking schedule will be uh, uh, on the notice board uh, uh, for you to see. Then in the afternoon from 2.30 till uh, uh, 6 o'clock um, there's the afternoon period and with the afternoon there will be some uh, exploration <coughs> some references to uh, the depth, richness of the path, perhaps uh, uh, taking a sutta discourse uh, or, or two. There will be sharing, small groups, pairs, larger groups, and keeping to one's experience, to one's understanding. Yeah, so it's not... A, theoretical, intellectual exercise we wish to be speaking from our exploration uh, that which we hear or read or spoken of uh, in these afternoon periods to see what's really relevant and useful and the opportunity provided to really uh, connect at uh, Around, that will be from around 2.30 till 5 o'clock and of course I'll give you much more details around the 2.30 period and that will go through till around uh, 5 o'clock and of course 
with a cup of tea and so forth. And then short break, then 5.15, I'll give a talk. This will last probably around 45 minutes. And at uh, 6 o'clock there's some food. So if the talk finishes at 6 o'clock, it would be hot food. And if it finishes at 6.15, it would be warm food. <laughs> no problem. At 6.30, well, we won't think about it. And, um, and then in the uh, evening time, it'll be the evening Dharma program. So tomorrow evening, there'll be the uh, inquiry time, invitation for a person, a person to come have some dialogue uh, with myself. And some of you listened to these previously. I'll again speak to you about that. On a Thursday evening, tomorrow evening, uh, sometimes some of the uh, local people from Andernak and uh, nearby uh, may come, sometimes two or three or five or six, so their uh, presence may be here from around 7.15 or so, where the, the 30 minutes sitting, they're welcome, and then the inquiry time, which they... Uh, I wish to stay to and lend uh, an ear on. And the office told me a little bit earlier on that at, um, most of you are here. There are three people who will uh, arrive tomorrow and there are three others, well, they don't know. So God knows where they are. No, not even God knows. So they, they, so they may materialise or <laughs> perhaps they're lost in their mobile phone. I don't know. So uh, <laughs> I shouldn't say that. So, uh, but a very good welcome to you, of course, and also the commitment that goes uh, with it. So from the evening time, it's the, 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 the noble silence uh, begins. Um, right through until uh, two th- 2.30. And with the preciousness of uh, the noble silence, one of the aspects uh, of it is that in the quietitude of the noble silence, it does contribute to our receptivity. It does contribute to us, enabling us to see more clearly the movements of the mind. And the silence provides one of the most suitable environments because of the absence of words and concepts and ideas, the silence, the noble silence, is in order to help bring out and us see more clearly what the mind is saying, what the event is in the mind, what the voice or voices are in the mind, what the thoughts are. And to see those clearly, some of which truly can be nourished, truly are really worthy of our interest, some may be a pointer towards the insights, and sometimes it is just noise. <laughs> thinking, thinking, thinking. And a little bit more interest in life, and a little bit less interest in thinking, thinking, thinking. Life gets an opportunity to find its way to us, which is precious. It would be a great pity to spend one's life in some pathetic substitute universe where the immediacy of life is 
quite something. So, here for the noble silence, here for the communications with each other, we're here for uh, the meditations, and we're here to explore the field of experience and all the insights and realizations that may come in a variety of ways. Let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we? Thank <laughs> you.